Hello and welcome to Stars, Cells, and God, the show where we discuss new discoveries taking place at the frontiers of science that have theological and philosophical implications, as well as new discoveries that point to the reality of God's existence. My name is Jeff Zwerink. Today I'm going to be talking with Dr. Hugh Ross, and we're going to explore some of the science that points to God. But before we get into that discussion, I wanted to encourage you to subscribe to our channel, Reasons to Believe, and follow us on social media at RTB underscore officials so you can be informed of our new videos and other content we produce. Fuzz, good to have you. Or sorry, Hugh, you're not fuzz. I don't know why I said fuzz, but I haven't got a lot no, of fuzz up there. You just look very different. There's no reason for that, but uh, it's funny how our minds work. But anyway, Hugh, good to have you here today. I'm just going to turn the floor over to you. What discovery do you have to talk with us today? Well, let me give you a little bit of background first. Uh, when I did my PhD many decades ago, uh, I was looking at these distant quasars and uh, galaxies, and I needed really high sensitivity. So I was getting time on the world's largest radio telescopes that existed at that time. Right. But I also signed up to use very broad band receivers. I mean, I was literally looking at with receivers of bandwidth that was one gigahertz or greater. So, so just uh, just to clarify, what does it mean when you're talking about bandwidth? There, why is that? Why is wide bandwidth? What well, What are you doing? The greater there? the bandwidth, the more signal you get uh, from the quasar of the galaxy. Okay. So, if you're looking at really faint quasars, you want as high a sensitivity as possible. Okay. And so, I used a, the biggest telescope that was available, and then I used a very broad band receiver. Okay. The reason for that as an introduction is that kind of research today no longer can be done. I did my PhD at the best time to do it uh, because that kind of bandwidth today, you're going to wind up with radio interference. There's just way too much. Ah, uh, okay. You know, the, the satellites are orbiting mm -hmm. the Earth, the GPS, all the ground-based stuff. There's just way too much radio noise. And so radio astronomers do today, they might take a broad bandwidth, but they'll chunk out pieces all the way through mm -hmm. to try to eliminate the radio interference. So you wind up with a narrower band. And a lot of radio astronomy, too, in fact, most of it is done at quite narrow bands, which means we have to find some way to enhance the sensitivity. Fortunately, today, there are larger radio telescopes. You can use these big arrays where you're pulling in dozens of radio telescopes. So, so how, how does, had the sizes of radio telescopes increased significantly since you were using them to what they are today? Not so much the size. I mean, I used a 300-foot telescope in That's West pretty Virginia, good size, so. 150-foot telescope in, uh, you know, in Canada. Right. And, and you know, both were you know, high-sensitivity telescopes. Mm -hmm. uh, but to get the sensitivity I needed, I went with the broadest band receivers right, okay. that were available. And my whole and so, point so is... So broadband allows more radio signal in, but it right. also means you're going to get radio signal from everywhere is right. what it effectively You're means. going to be more subject to noise. Right. And back then when I was doing my thesis, uh, you know, I was in places like there, there was a spot in West Virginia, a spot in northern Ontario uh, that was protected. Okay. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of satellite activity at that time. Okay. Today, there's literally tens of thousands of satellites orbiting the Earth. And so, in fact, it's even rough when the moon is up because the moon will reflect away <laughs> that radio noise. So, like, we would, you know, today you want to, you know, get your radio observing in when the moon is not a factor. Uh, that tries to minimize things. Uh, but bottom line is this. Radio astronomers are now realizing, okay, 
we need to find a radio quiet place. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to find it on planet Earth. There's just way too much satellite activity up there. And now they're talking about Starlink, where they're talking about putting tens of thousands of satellites in right. orbit. I mean, is this going to be the death knell to radio astronomy? And uh, there's articles now being published in the scientific literature saying uh, radio astronomy may be an obsolete discipline. Well, uh, we talked about that on a previous Star Cells and God, not even just radio astronomy, but the number of satellites means you're going to have sat- you know, what you need for low-cost uh, low internet access across the world. You're just going to have satellites going through your optical images all the time. So this well, is a pretty serious problem. That's now routine with optical astronomy. They have to take out all the trackings right. of the satellites. And it's one thing to take out maybe five or six tracks on your image. Mm-hmm. But if you have to take out 300 tracks on your image, now you've got a real problem. Your well, image will be degraded. Well, yeah, and it's not just, ooh, I'm taking out the tracks and getting what's there. You're just eliminating the track, yeah. which means you no longer have that data in there. So I, I could imagine th- this seems like a persistent problem across astronomy because I know when, I'm do- when I was doing high-energy gamma or very high-energy gamma-ray astronomy, Ambient light from nearby cities would cause us problems, so right. we had to we had to do a lot to find a uh, quiet or a, not quiet location, a dark location where there just weren't lights around, and the number of lights continues to go up. So, well, when I was a young astronomer, I mean the Mount Palomar two hundred inch telescope was the premier optical telescope. Right, it was in a really dark site. It's not dark any longer. <laughs> I mean, cities are growing up all around it. And particularly LED lighting, which is much brighter uh, than the mercury and sodium lights. And so that's now becoming a problem. And you're right. But radio astronomy is the one discipline of astronomy that's impacted the most seriously. I do agree. All Mm -hmm. wavelengths of astronomy are impacted but particularly radio astronomy. Is that just simply because anytime we're communicating, we're almost always using radio waves of some that's sort? That's right. So that's right. it just, any sort of, you know, cell phones or radio of some sort, correct? That's correct. And the problem is as industrial use of this kind of communication increases, there's competition for bandwidth. Right. They're saying, okay, well, uh, these cell phone companies have this bandwidth. I need to lobby to get a different bandwidth. Mm-hmm. Bottom line, there's not much left for radio astronomy <laughs> with all these different people uh, <laughs> clamoring to get their bandwidth. So what radio astronomers are basically saying, well, there is one radio quiet place still that we can go, backside of the moon. Okay. Because <laughs> the backside of the moon, Earth is always blocked out. Okay. So anything going on on Earth is not going to be a problem. And Probably won't be a lot of new development there either. So uh, that's, no, that's not, not a too real many high rises are being <laughs> scheduled to be built there, and so uh, and you know this this slide here basically shows you the back side of the moon. It looks quite different than the the front side. It really does. It yeah. just it just has uh, you can tell it's the moon, but it's got a very different feel to it. Well, I mean, obviously the back side gets bombarded a lot more heavily than the front side. Okay, so it explains all the cratering you see there. But radio astronomers are now seriously thinking of putting radio telescopes in the backside of the moon. Several proposals have been made. There's one that's actually funded and is scheduled to be put up there in 2025. That's the LUCE, L-U-S-C-E project. So it's fully funded. It's going to go. They're going to put four radio telescopes on the backside of the moon. 
What size are we talking here? Because those presumably have to be fully built things that fit inside a rocket. So we're not talking very large there. We're not. And uh, the other advantage of the backside of the moon, you can put very low frequency radio telescopes there. Okay. So one of the problems with doing low frequency radio astronomy on the Earth is the ionosphere. Literally, we can't make any observations below 30 megahertz because mm-hmm. the ionosphere blocks that out. So this Lucy project is going to put four radio telescopes on the backside of the moon, and they're going to be able to sample between a tenth of a megahertz and 50 megahertz. It's never been done before. This is going to open That's what whole, I was wondering, yeah. Yeah, it's never been done before. So this is going to open a whole new arena of research and astronomy because we're going to be able to explore a part of the electromagnetic spectrum that's never been explored before. And in particular, their main project is what they call a cosmic dawn. Uh, the cosmic dawn is when the first stars appear in the universe. The James Webb Space Telescope is really focused on trying to identify the characteristic features mm-hmm. of those first stars. Well, this is another much cheaper way to try to get some information about the universe's first stars. Because the thinking is, these first stars likely are quite high mass, mm-hmm. because that's a time when the universe only has hydrogen and helium right. and a tiny amount of lithium. And so to get stars to form with only hydrogen and helium, most astronomers are convinced, at a minimum, the star has to be 30 times the mass of the sun, and that's quite challenging. More likely, we're looking at something between 100 and 300 times the mass of our star, the sun. Stars that massive will actually radiate radio waves uh, below 30 megahertz. And so... So what is it about, is there something about being very massive that makes those sorts of radio waves as opposed to smaller stars? Yes. And that's the whole point. And they said, hey, for not much money, we can put four tiny, because the thing about that kind of a, a wavelength, you're now looking at cheap radio astronomy. It's the high frequency radio astronomy that's expensive. The low frequency is, is cheap. Well, all you need is just like, well, hey, why don't we show the next slide? Because it actually shows you what they're going to put on the moon. And, uh, you know, there's a little lander. But the radio telescope are those four long wires that are sticking out. This looks like a whole lot like the antenna on my TV, 2030. Well, I, I still yeah. actually have one of these. But. <laughs> Only they're a lot longer and thinner. Okay. But that's all you need to pick up very low-frequency radio waves. Mm, okay. And, so, and they're going to put a four of them in a cross-like shape on the backside of the moon. So this this is very different. When I mean, you said radio telescopes. I'm thinking VLA type, you know, big yeah, dishes and stuff. diameter. Well, but yeah. even even if you're not going that size, it's a full dish, lots of complicated electronics. This is conceptually much simpler. So much simpler, much cheaper, uh, but it has to go on the backside of the moon because the level of radio interference from the satellites that are up there would pose a problem. So they put it on the backside of the moon, and yeah. Uh, astronomers are really excited about it because this is another way to complement the James Webb Space Telescope. It's going to be looking at these stars at infrared wavelengths. This looks for these stars at very uh, long radio wavelengths. And the plan is uh, it would really help us to fine-tune the Big Bang creation model Mm -hmm. if we know the masses of the first stars in the universe. 
It'll tell us a lot about the physics of the early arena. It'll also help us understand galaxy formation because the mass of the first stars and number density of those first stars will tell you how fast uh, galaxies will form, what kind of galaxies will form. And there's already a lot of buzz on the Internet about the James Webb Space Telescope finding these early galaxies having features that some astronomers didn't expect. So, so I, have a, I have a question yeah. about that physics, but a, a different question first. So by starting to put satellites on the backside of the moon or, or just electronic equipment on the backside of the moon, are we going to start introducing radio noise on the backside of the moon? So, for example, you've got satellites there. They've got to have power to run and everything. And granted, there's, there's, I don't know exactly what the power source is, but anytime you've got electronics, you're producing some sort of radio noise. And so how problematic is that going to be? Well, an article just got published in Nature saying that uh, this Lucy uh, may be the only uh, radio astronomy project we can put in the backside of the moon for the simple reason 250 lunar orbiters and lunar landers are planned for the next decade. Oh, and so we're going to run into the same problem. We're, we're going to run into the same problem because <laughs> they're all going to generate radio interference. No high rises, <laughs> but lots of moon satellites. <laughs> yeah, and so they're basically radio astronomers are saying we need an international treaty basically to protect the backside of the moon. Hmm, okay. Not just for radio astronomy because, hey, that'd be a great place to put an optical telescope. You wouldn't have to worry about satellite tracks, et cetera. Uh, so, well, and it's, you know, it just goes to the, you know, uh, the people that tried to put the uh, first restaurant on the moon. I mean, the food was great. There was just no atmosphere, right. which uh. Uh, <laughs> helps with your optical astronomy because now you're not fighting the uh, atmospheric effects of putting a telescope like you do here on the surface of the true, Earth. True. So there's lots of good reasons in terms of astronomy research to protect the backside of the moon. And so they're basically saying, if we don't get this treaty uh, agreed mm. upon and signed, literally within the next year, it'll be too late. Yeah, I, mean, no, I can see that. This thing's 2025. Maybe we can protect that mm -hmm. uh, by telling people, hey, hold off on launching your lunar orbiters. But you can imagine, if you've got 150 lunar orbiters, that's going to create a huge amount of noise, radio noise, all over the moon. And it's going to really limit uh, this kind of uh, research that can take place. And they're saying, why, you know, by all means, let's focus on the, the side that faces the Earth. Uh, and, and we are going to Well, but if you're, you're going to put an order, orbiter up there, it's got to at least partially touch the backside of the moon or else you're riding, running right along the meridian all the time. So. Well, they're talking about well, maybe a part of the treaty would be you shut the thing down when it's on the backside of the moon so it doesn't mm. have... So they're basically saying, we're not asking that there be no lunar orbiters at all and no lunar lab landers at all. But if they are going to send a lander or an orbiter, it needs to meet certain specifications. That makes sense, yeah. In other words, it needs to have very radio-quiet electronics on board or electronics that are shut off uh, when it's uh, a threat to the backside of the moon. The whole point is there's really no other radio-quiet place in the entire solar system. I mean, mm -hmm. you go to Mars, you got problems. <laughs> and so the backside of the moon is the most radio quiet site in the entire solar system. And fortunately, it's not too far away. And yeah, so, that is helpful, so for 
Not a huge investment of money. We can put significant instruments on the backside of the moon. So it just makes sense to protect it. Yeah. Uh, but as the article was pointing out, we don't have a lot of time. No, that, that makes sense. And it's kind of, there's a little bit of urgency to making sure we do that. So going back to the physics question I had, um, this is something I'm cur curious your thoughts because, you know, with the James Webb, we're starting to find galaxies that were bigger. Lots of press to these objects that don't line up with what we thought. And it strikes me that as we're looking at these first stars, there, there's a parallel in that what very real sense where we're probing this for the first time. So yes. we've been, okay, looking at, they end up here, you know, we can see things later on. And then we're, we're saying, all right, we know what the cosmic microwave background radiation looks like. And you kind of have to extrap or interpolate between there and what we see to figure out when do stars form? Are they large? Are they small? Those sorts of things. That just seems ripe for, as we go in and observe, we're going to find that we've got a pretty good picture of how we think it would go, but there's no no real data there yet. So as we get the data, we could find things that are unexpected, if you will. Do you see that as a problem, or is that what you expect, or how do you, how do you think about that? Well, I mean, there's lots in the literature, even before the James Webb Space Telescope went up, that the population density of the very first stars, the size range of those very first stars, uh, will determine how rapidly galaxies form after the first stars form, and how many are gonna be, what their different characteristics will be. And so uh, trying to see those first stars and measure them is kind of like a holy grail that will explain the galaxies. What James Webb is doing is looking at these early galaxies and trying to extrapolate based on what they're seeing, okay, this is what the first stars might be like. Right. A lot of people think the James Webb Space Telescope has got the power to image the first stars in the universe. It does not. It's not strong and powerful enough to do that unless mm -hmm. they're lucky enough to find a big cluster of firstborn stars where there's nothing else around it. So uh, then it would be able to get an ensemble average of what they look like, but right. you're still not imaging a single star there. You're not so. imaging a single star, and astronomers agree trying to find such a thing as a long shot, because that basically assumes that you've got a large population of these big firstborn stars. Maybe that's not the case. Right. So we're needing other ways. James Webb by itself is not going to give us the information we need. And so this Lucy project is mm -hmm. a way to say, okay, here's another way we can sample it. I'm actually writing an article now where they found a very ancient star in our galaxy and its spectra indicates uh, that it had to be polluted uh, by a star that's about 150 times the mass of our star, the sun, because mm -hmm. uh, we see a big helium signature, but no other metals. Okay. So, it, so this, this is another way. We can look at really old stars yeah. in our galaxy, and if we're lucky enough to find some that we know could only be polluted uh, by the very firstborn stars and nothing else, and firstborn stars is a problem because the firstborn small mass stars takes tens of millions of years to form. And by that time, they're no longer the first stars because lots of <laughs> other stars have formed, yeah. including the second generation stars. So the real goal, if you really want to find a firstborn star uh, that's not polluted by stars mm -hmm. that form later, they have to be the really massive ones. 
Well, wh one of the things that in your description that I find exciting about this is that, okay, yes, we're looking for optical. How do we find the first stars? That there could be, I mean, we've got this picture of how we think things developed. And I imagine it's going to largely fall out in that line. But, you know, we are again, interpolating between, you know, the, the CMB and the first galaxies, which we haven't quite detected yet. Um, and the idea that it may be a more complicated picture, there, there could be a number of scenarios where that meet the CMB constraint and the first galaxies constraint. CMB being cosmic, cosmic microwave, microwave background, 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 right, yeah. yeah. Um, it wouldn't surprise me, or, you know, so having multiple instruments that go in there are going to help us figure out how complicated a picture is it our simple picture which i think with galaxy formation i think it may just be a little more complicated than we thought that that's that's not that we were wrong it's just that we didn't have the data to constrain what we thought or what we the simple picture but this is kind of exciting to have multiple tools to be able to probe that era because that will give us a lot more information well only with these multiple tools are we going to solve a problem of what are the first stars in the universe like mm -hmm. and how do they contribute to galaxy formation? So yeah, this is the only way to go. And for that reason alone, <laughs> we need to make sure that Lucy Knight is protected <laughs> from radio interference. And also we can all imagine there'd be some really good things we'd like to put in the backside of the moon. Wouldn't it be neat to have a radio array there? Right. Uh, wouldn't it be neat, as you point out, to have optical instruments that wouldn't have to worry about any atmospheric or ionospheric problems. So, so kind of a bizarre out of left field question. Do you think we have the capability, is it physically possible to build a telescope that could image a star that's one of the first stars? What, I mean, like, what sort of optical telescope would you need, or maybe infrared telescope, because they're redshifted? Well, something What's... with a hundred times the collecting power of the James Webb Space Telescope situated the same place as the James Webb, that would pull it off. But now you're looking at a lot of money. Well, okay, yeah, it is, but that's a technological problem, not a fundamental physics problem. So you think fundamentally the physics is capable, we are, it might be a doable thing, whether it's worth our while to go do it is a separate question. Well, but. others have thought, well, maybe we could actually uh, do interferometry at optical wavelengths, just like we do at radio wavelengths. Mm -hmm. If you have it in outer space, uh, you get to keep the phase information of the optical uh, wave, uh, just like you do with a radio wave on Earth. And that would be less money than trying to build a really gigantic <laughs> uh, telescope. Yes. Let's have several smaller ones, link them up as interferometer, because now we're going to have resolving power that you won't have with a single telescope. Well, that, what, so, that was basically the concept behind the terrestrial planet finder is multiple optical telescopes hooked up or as an interferometer. So right. it's not like that's new technology. I mean, we haven't built something like that in space optically yet, but it's, it's certainly things scientists have been considering for, well, for quite a while. Well, the problem with optical wavelengths is that now you've got to find some way to uh, you know, uh, analyze the waves that are coming with the different telescopes. The higher the frequency, the better your clocks have got to be. Yes. <laughs> and so we don't have clocks that good yet. Mm -hmm. So that, that's a missing piece of technology. We need better uh, clocks than what we have right now. Uh, but I don't see a technological limit, maybe a financial limitation. Of course, yeah. There, yeah. There's Well, and, and I could see where even if you could do it and in principle we had the money, the 
there are just other interesting projects. We may decide we've got that, we've got enough handle on that based on the observations we have that that's not the best use of our resources. Well, that's the advantage of this Lucy thing. It's a low cost uh, experiment because you're using things that are relatively easy to put on the backside of the moon. And it's giving us a wavelength band that's never been explored before. And so the whole idea is let's see what Lucy can do. And if it gives us some interesting information, we say, you know what? We need to put a dozen of these things on the moon. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so is is there just one, or did you say there were four? four. There were four. four. Okay. They're putting them in kind of a cross-like arrangement. Okay. And so this is kind of a you know let's try this and see what we get. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may be adequate to solve the problem of the first stars. It may not be. We may say, hey, we need to scale this up. Yes. But scaling that up is going to be a whole lot less expensive than saying let's put a bigger uh, telescope than the James Webb of them. I mean, that's a yes. $10 billion project. <laughs> We're talking millions here as, as opposed to billions. Well, and, and it's worth pointing out, I, I've just appreciated the longer I've been in astronomy, how many significant discoveries are made because we've built an instrument that could we couldn't do something before. So whether it's like build the James Webb, which is we just haven't been able to make infrared observations with that sensitivity, or build an X-ray telescope, or build an infrared telescope in space, or whatever. So putting something out there where we've never been able to observe, there's almost certainly going to be new stuff that we just, you know, we've got some ideas of what we might find, but I'm I'm willing to bet we're going to find new stuff that we didn't even know might be there. Well, it's certainly in the scientific literature, Jeff, that uh, being able to observe below 30 megahertz, there's a lot of potential research. This isn't the only thing <laughs> that can be done, but it's the thing that has the highest interest amongst astrophysicists below the 30 megahertz range. Right. So they're saying, let's do this first, and uh, then we can start thinking. Because this basically will make a case before Congress. Hey, look what this thing did mm-hmm. for just a little tiny bit of money. If we scale up, we can you know, basically explore a lot more things of astrophysical interest. Right. So you have uh, one more picture there. Is there. That's actually for another star that's cells and God. That's another one. All right. So we won't worry about that. In, uh, any other final comments or nope, thoughts? That'll to do wrap it. Up? Thank okay. you. I just want this treaty to be signed. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. You heard it here, folks. On heard it here first on Star Cells and God. We are advocating for a treaty. No, I'm. <laughs> <laughs> it is interesting just how we run into these competing interests. Uh, You know, I remember in our Star Cells and God where we were talking about the satellites is like, we want to provide internet access to people across the world so that everybody has access to it. I mean, that's that's a good humanitarian, good thing to do, but it's impacting our ability to do science. And so how do we manage that is a, that's a complicated It's interesting you mentioned that, Jeff, because one proposal from astronomers is okay, we're going to let the Chinese, we're going to let Elon Musk put up these 250,000 satellites, but we're going to ask that they would fund uh, the building of telescopes, say, on the backside of the moon. That way, the U.S. taxpayer isn't involved. Uh, we get these companies, because they're, they're basically wiping out ground-based radio astronomy. Say, fine, we'll let you wipe out ground-based astronomy, but we still need to do this. Help us fund uh, these instruments on the backside of the moon. It, uh, that, you know, it's an interesting proposal. I, I would that to me raises questions of short-sightedness because, in some sense, why we're in this problem from an astronomical perspective is, you know, years ago there were 
I don't know, treaties, but regulations set on what could you develop? And, and I know those discussions took place in the context of, as radio astronomers, we want these bands open because this is what we want to study. Fine and dandy, but now you come along later and it's like, oh, it'd be nice to, but there's already technology built in that wave band. And so I could see, even if we said, all right, let's put telescopes out on the moon and we'll do our radio astronomy there, that eventually you come back and you say, oh, but there's this thing that we can only do because we need the baseline of the earth or something like that. And you might have regulated the region of, of uh, bandwidth you need or regulated the 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 frequency space you need out of existence because it, it just wasn't something you were thinking about at the time. It seems like that's kind of where we are with radio astronomy at some level today. Yeah, and there is a precedent, as you mentioned. We already have an international treaty mm -hmm. that protects the OH line and the H line for radio astronomy. Although some radio astronomers are saying, wait a minute, those bandwidths are protected, but if you've got a really strong radio <laughs> signal right next to it, it's going to leak in. And so they're basically saying we need to make sure that they're not pu pumping on too much power because it could even ruin the bands that are already protected. But the whole point is we already have international treaties. Astronomers are saying we want one more treaty. I think your uh, one of the things that you have said that has stuck with me that I think is very um, applies here as well is in this discussion of uh, global warming, climate change, that. Yeah, there seem to be two extremes that you could either go, oh, global warming is irrelevant. We don't have to pay attention to it, kind of do whatever we want. The other side is we're going to destroy the earth. We need to curtail human activity and keep keep things in, in line. And both of those err. And, and then the comment you made that I think is relevant in, the, in that context that I think is relevant here is that the way God has designed things is that the solutions that are work are going to be the ones that both take care of humanity and the planet. It seems to me that taking care of people, you know, the humanitarian aspect of providing internet access because of the benefits that brings, and the basic research of studying the cosmos, that God's probably put things together that allows us to do both if we look for those solutions. Well, isn't it interesting that we actually have a backside of the moon that never <laughs> faces the earth? It's like God has already provided the solution for us. and uh, It's just an expensive one. That's all I would say. <laughs> right. But, you know, it, it's not a given that you're going to have a moon that uh, where the backside never faces the planet. We happen to be having this big moon mm -hmm. with lots of room on the backside that's tidally locked to the earth. And in one sense, I look at that as a gift from God. He's actually provided a place mm, where we can yeah. go. So, so uh, we need to be grateful for that. Well, I mean, we are starting to put telescopes out in pretty exotic places. Uh, you know, it used to be get it up in the atmosphere or get it up and just have it orbit the Earth. But we're now, like with the James Webb, it's out at this Lagrange point that is millions of miles away or you know, over a million miles away. There are other places in our solar system where you could put satellites, telescopes that would allow us to do things that the more we know, the more we learn about these places and say, oh, hey, this might be a good place to do. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to your proposition here. Yeah, God's providence, <laughs> even for radio astronomy. <laughs> well, very good. Thanks. Okay. I appreciate that discussion. Uh, I'm going to shift a little bit of gears instead of talking about uh, radio astronomy out there, uh, talking about the Earth's magnetic field here on Earth. And well, obviously, if you're talking about the Earth's magnetic field, it's here on Earth. But um, we have known for a long time that Earth has a magnetic field and that this magnetic field varies. In fact, uh, you know, in the Earth science class that I've taught, uh, 
one of the things that really struck me is just how that magnetic field is so useful, not only in protecting the atmosphere. I mean, I do gamma ray astronomy was sure. my background. And the magnetic field does a whole lot to protect the atmosphere. And the atmosphere does a huge amount to protect us from just the ubiquitous cosmic radiation that's out there. Because those particles, as they traverse our atmosphere, just get absorbed and funnel and because of the magnetic field funneled up to the south pole and the north pole and so it protects us but we're also finding that that magnetic field is a very useful tool for recording the history of what's going on earth you're actually suggesting it's a clock a clock in some sense yeah you can use it for a clock because because it is not necessarily predictable, but recorded. Like we have in the, you know, in the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, you've got new crust being formed. That crust, there are things in the crust that actually align with the magnetic field. So we can go trace out the history of the magnetic field, its intention and its directionality over great epochs of time, which now serves as a tool, which I found interesting here, to actually go back and date some of the difficult to date uh, regions in the Levant, you know, the kind of the where area where Israel has been in the past that are very difficult because you know there's this city that was there, you know it was destroyed because you can see the, the archeological remnants of that, but getting a date on it is very hard. And one of the ways to get that date or what, what they're doing is they're actually reconstructing the military campaigns that are described in the Bible using geomagnetic field data. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, what's going on there is that, you know, like in the Mid-Atlantic Ridge where you get this new rock welling up, it's liquid or molten enough that things can move around in there and these magnetic features can line up with the magnetic field of the Earth. Well, in these uh, uh, various uh, descriptions, like in 1 Kings 8, 12, you know, there's this King Hazael from, he's an Aramean, uh, talking to Elijah, and he asks, why does my Lord weep? And Elijah's response was, because I know what harm you will do to the Israelite people. You will set their fortresses on fire, put their young men to the sword, dash their little ones in pieces, and rip over their pregnant women. One, it's just a brutal time. Yes. I mean, I, I've been reading through uh, the Old Testament, or you know, that portion of the Old Testament fairly recently, and it's like, wow, there's, you've got kings come along and they wipe out all the other descendants of the previous king, or there, there's just all sorts of conspiracy and kind of brutality to what's going on there. But in particular, this idea you will set their fortresses on fire. That one of the implication or one of the statements this is making is that as these conquests were happening, it seemed like it wasn't enough just to go in and take control. It was like, they're going to go in and they're going to destroy conclusively, very uh, definitively, like establishing power and dominance, the regions they're conquered. And one of the ways they do that is they would come into this place and they would set things on fire and burn things up. And what that did is it would, these fires would burn well over 600 degrees Celsius. And so where you've got pottery and you've got uh, mud bricks that things are built out of, it will heat those up enough that the magnetic features inside those bricks will now align with Earth's magnetic field. Cool and dandy. 
It also turns out that when you look at the history of the magnetic field, the intensity of the magnetic field, the period between the 10th century BCE and the 6th century BCE, the Earth's magnetic field was fluctuating a lot more than it is at current times, uh, you know, twice as much. And so what they can do, and this is a very complicated graph that really all I want you to look at there is that on the top part, you can see there's this yellow band of intensity and you can see that it's fluctuating by about 20, 30% there. Mm -hmm. which is a pretty significant amount. And so what they can do, what uh, this paper was looking at was going and finding various mud bricks from a number of regions where we know that these places were sacked and burned and now going and looking at the magnetic data in these various cities and trying to say, okay, where do they fall in this intensity? So and you see measuring the magnetic field strength in the sample and then trying to correspond it with what they know. Right. And you see it's got fluctuations there. So it could, you know, you have to ask the question, okay, just by knowing the intensity doesn't tell you where in time it is. But not only do you know the intensity, but you also now know um the angle of the magnetic field. So where it is pointing to what we call north now and how far up, up and down it's fluctuating. Because the magnetic pole moves around. Exactly. So, yeah. And it moves around relatively significantly. I think I read somewhere it could be up on, uh, upwards of 40 miles uh, a year. So by looking at this, the intensity and the directionality variations, they are now able to start constraining where these some of these events happened because very often, I mean, you'll read through scripture and it, it will say, you know, oh, uh, and Gath was destroyed. But it doesn't give a lot of description and it's really kind of hard to place where it is or it's even mentioned as a parenthetical as, you know, something that happened previously. So it's hard to pin down. There are certain places where they can date very precisely with, you know, there's there's a layer right above, layer below, and so they can actually get down to days, months, and uh, you know, well, not not hours, but uh, you know, in, on the time scale of days for certain types of certain events, and they use those as anchor points. But now with those, and so the general place of okay, it's got to be in this 50 year period. Well, now if you know it's within that 50 year period you can go in and say, oh, it's got this magnetic field intensity, and you can get a much tighter constraint on the date for it. And they're able to do two things, or two things I find very fascinating about this. One is that, like with the Aramean campaigns, that's where Haziel's going in and, and fighting various things. You can see that Gath is on there, and they can now date the destruction of Gath to, you know, a relatively small, you know, within a year or two of that, mm -hmm. based on these measurements. Because they know it happened during the Aramaeans, which was a you know 30, 30 year period. Now they can get it down to a smaller time. So one, the idea that using this very long-term feature of the Earth, the magnetic field, that it's got enough fluctuation and variability that we can measure that fluctua fluctuations and variability adequately enough that we can start being able to do things. The, the, the creativity behind thinking of this, I, I just find it fascinating. Well, upstairs in my library, I got two Bibles, which actually have dates for all the features in the historical books. Right. But yeah, a lot of them will say, you know, between 950 and 1050. Exactly, yeah. So I'm going to 
thanks to this discovery, I'm going to be able to get a new Bible that'll have all those dates that are going to be accurate to about plus or minus a year. It's something like that. I yeah. mean, that's that's. I don't know whether it's going to go from fifty down to a year or whether it's fifty down to five years. But either way, that's a significant a huge improvement. improvement. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So I find just the, the ingenuity of coming up with this technique very incredible. More than that, what I find is that you're seeing evidence of this description. You, you read through Kings and Chronicles. You go back even into First and Second Samuel. There's just a lot of things that happen in there where David became king and Solomon, his son, became king. And this, this battle happened and this, you know, all of these things that are told from the aspect, not of here's the time where it happened, but here's how this is establishing the nation of Israel and what God is doing with the nation. That's the focus in scripture. But yet we're finding that all of these things seem to line up very well with what we're measuring as we do go find data. So you're basically saying this is another way of establishing biblical inerrancy because you have all this description in the Bible and say, hey, right. here's an external source that actually verifies what the Bible is saying is accurate. Yeah, and, and, and I would say it's probably a little more complicated than that in that you're using both Scripture and what you find to get the full picture. So right. it's not like, well, Scripture says this, we understand, and then we come in with this other technique and say, oh, yeah, that's right. But what we're finding is this, again, just remarkable congruence between what we're finding in Scripture and what we're finding in the historical and archaeological record, which is very much parallel to what I first found fascinating when you came and spoke at Iowa State back in the late 80s when I was there, is that the Bible doesn't say a lot about the universe, it says more about the earth, but what it does say about the earth and the universe, you know, there's a beginning, there's these sequence of events that happen in Genesis, that there's a continuity or a constancy about how the universe behaves, that there's this dynamic nature to space and time, that when you look at what the Bible says and you look at what science says, they line up very well. There's a consistency you can demonstrate. And so that to me is a just a, an increasing validation that Scripture has authority, that we should listen to what it says about things. Where it says things that we can measure, we find a remarkable congruence. Not says everything lines up exactly. Wouldn't expect that. We would expect there's interesting things to keep studying. But there's this remarkable congruence of the things that we can measure that tells us some of the things that we can't measure, like the new creation, that that's actually what it says is trustworthy and reliable. And I think that's just a phenomenal message that we ought to get out to people. Right. And so in your spare time, you're going to generate a new chronological Bible for us? I probably am not going to get into that <laughs> task. One, because my interest is more in the physics and astronomy part of it. Um, that's why I went into physics and astronomy. But you know, I mean, this is what we're doing in our scholar community is we are pulling people in who have expertise to do stuff like this. That would be really interesting because we have a lot of theologians in our scholar community. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is a project they could take on. Well, and, and not only do we have theologians, but we have geologists and people who do historical archaeology. And so right. I, I think that would be a pretty fascinating discussion. I mean, one of the things that I've wanted to do, and, and I know you forayed into it, and so it's not like this, is, this has not been done, but kind of, kind of look and say, you know, what can we say about what happened on the various days and what sort of time constraints could we put on there and say, you know, 
the data has got to be a little better now than it was 20-ish years ago when I first started seeing that. And so, you know, what, what sort of constraints and what sort of boundaries can we put on that? Right. I think that's just fascinating to fascinating work to do because it establishes and, again, validates that Scripture has authority. Uh, well, I'm excited that this could literally deliver a factor of 50 improvement on some historical dates we see in our Bible. I, you're right. Uh, I, I, I wholeheartedly concur with what you're saying. So That's but, exciting. Uh, it, it is. And, uh, you know, again— you know, I, I had a discussion with a fellow about the shroud, and we were talking about, you know, is this the burial cloth of Jesus? And, you know, I mean, to me, one of the things that's fascinating about the shroud is that the Bible describes what crucifixion looked like with Jesus. And whether the shroud is Jesus' burial cloth or some other burial cloth, what it does validate is that the description of how crucifixion looked matches what we see in this day. And so that provides data that the biblical description of things is accurate. And the fact that we find that in astronomy, the fact that we find that in geophysics, that we find it in archaeology, and that we find it in all these different disciplines is, to me, a pretty compelling tale and a pretty compelling story that we should take what the Bible says very seriously. It gives me great confidence to go out and talk to people about what Scripture says about things. Not that I have all the answers, because if I have to have all the answers, I will never speak up. But it gives me great confidence that where I run into things that appear to be problems, I just need to go look at it more. Or we may just not have the data that allows us to answer that question yet. So I can see you talking to your neighbor and say, hey, let me talk to you about Hezio. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it generally doesn't happen that way, but it does happen where people will talk about things and it's like, you know, they'll make statements to that allude to the idea that the Bible's trust untrustworthy or unreliable. I'm like, hey, no, I've got I've got ev- or I've got data that I can well, bring into that discussion. These historical books in the Bible are a place where a lot of skeptics go, so this is going to be a big help. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Jeff. Well, very good. Uh, thank you for joining us today on Star Cells and God. I want to encourage you to join the discussion in the comments below. Remember to like this video, to subscribe for more content. We have new episodes of Star Cells and God releasing each Thursday. They're available here on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. And be sure to share this video with a friend. And remember, the more we know about science, the more reasons we have to believe.